All right, well, good morning, High Point. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And I want to begin today uh, by praising God for Element and all that happened this weekend. Amen. Can we give God a round, uh, a round of applause? Grateful for all the, the volunteers and all the people that uh, took time out of their weekend to make Element possible. Uh, grateful for Gerald, who has become uh, a, a more and more a dear friend of mine and uh, grateful for his ministry. Gerald left last night. Remember, this is the church. Gerald is the one who helped. Uh, we helped plant the church, a uh, home church, right? We supported them financially and had them on stage a few months ago. He left last night and didn't get to Atlanta till 3 a.m. Uh, to preach at his church this morning. And uh, because he's kind of, this is kind of that season where he's doing the preaching circuit. He's going to do that for six weeks in a row. He's going to go somewhere and then drive to Atlanta on Saturday to preach on Sunday. So it's kind of the, the reality of it. I was talking to him yesterday. I'm like, man, praise God that we love our jobs, man, because that, uh, that, is, that is crazy. Um, hey, uh, like I said, if you're new here, my name is Will, and uh, if you are here at the East Memphis campus, or perhaps you are watching uh, from our church at home campus, or connecting with us uh, through our Carville campus, uh, regardless of how you are connecting with us today, we are so grateful to have you here with us. Now, this morning, we are in the second week of our multi-week series through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, last week, Pastor Parker and I, uh, instead of jumping into the sermon and preaching a sermon in the sermon, uh, what we decided to do was zoom out and uh, we preached a sermon on the sermon. And uh, the reason why we did that is because we felt that in order to fully appreciate the forest, right, we have to see, sorry, you appreciate the trees, we have to understand the forest. And the Sermon on the Mount was always meant to be accepted and embraced fully. It's a sermon. Um, and so in order to understand chapter 7, you have to understand 5, 6, and 7. Um, and that's how Jesus did it. It's not like he preached a third of it, they took a break, and then he came back, and then the, the second, you know, then, then the third. No, he preached all of it in its entirety. And that's why last week we began by preaching on the sermon instead of just in the sermon. But this morning, we are finally going to be jumping in, and our passage today, um, as you can tell by uh, what Ambrose read, we are going to be in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, which is uh, called the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there, and uh, this morning we're going to work our way through uh, the Beatitudes. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this passage under two headings. We are going to begin by looking at the portrait of a disciple, and then we are going to then transition and conclude by looking at the position of a disciple. But this morning, we are going to start by looking at the portrait of a disciple. Now, here's the thing about a portrait. This is why I kind of named this first heading uh, a portrait, because what we're going to see as we work through the Beatitudes is essentially the Beatitudes are a, they are a portrait. They are a picture of what a disciple of Jesus should look like. And so what Jesus does in these first few verses of his sermon is essentially is he gives us eight marks or eight characteristics that should describe a follower of Jesus. And so as we work our way through these marks, through these characteristics, we're going to get a better idea of what a disciple of Jesus actually looks like. Now, to understand the Beatitudes, I feel that we actually have to define a specific word. There is a word that, as you, if you didn't notice, as uh, uh, Ambrose was reading, uh, there was a word that was repeated again and again. I don't even know where this dude's going to sit. I'm, where are you sitting, bro? Oh, there you go. Okay, good. I was, 
I'm like, there's no chair there, bro. Uh, uh, so the kind of things that go through my mind when I'm preaching. Uh, I was fascinated by that. But in order for us to understand uh, the Beatitudes, we have to define the word blessed. And the reason why we have to define the word blessed is because if we don't understand that word, we're not going to understand the rest of the passage. That word blessed is repeated again and again by Jesus. Now, the word there, blessed, in Greek, it literally means to be declared favored by God. It means to be declared happy by God. To be declared blessed by God. To be, one commentator says, to be declared congratulated by God. But what I want you to see, though, about that word is that it's a declaration and not a demand. I, I don't miss that. It is a vertical declaration over us, not a demand expected from us. That's a very important thing. It's not just knowing the definition, but knowing that it comes vertically from God and not horizontally from us. If you miss that part, you won't understand the rest of the Beatitudes, and you definitely won't understand <laughs> the rest of the sermon. And this is why I mentioned uh, last week that ultimately the Sermon on the Mount is to people who are already following Jesus. It's to a disciple. It's to someone who already has a relationship with Jesus. Someone who has moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. These aren't demands. These are declarations. These are things that are true of us if we are in Christ. And they are things that are not true of us if we are not in Christ. It doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how much we strive. It doesn't matter if we try to be peacemakers or pure in heart. If we are not in Christ, these things are not true of us. They are declarations from God, not demands from God. Does that make sense? I'm going to share everyone. Does that make sense? Okay, cool, cool. So, the word there, blessed, essentially, the way it's described there in the original language, it is a non-circumstantial happiness and joy. It is a non-circumstantial happiness and joy that is not achieved horizontally, but received vertically. Now, what's interesting is that if the word there, blessed, means happy, uh, our world loves happiness, Right? But what's interesting is that the world's definition of blessedness is very different from God's definition of blessedness. And, and here's why. Because in the world that we live in, blessedness starts with the individual. You are your own deity. You are your own God. You are your own authority. And so since it starts with you, in the world's definition, happiness comes from the inside, from you, not from the outside, from God. In the biblical definition, Blessedness, happiness comes from God. It starts with God. So when you start on the opposite side of the spectrum, you already have a very different definition. But here's what makes it even worse. It's not just that in the world's eyes, self is the deity. That's one of the things we talk about in our DNA course that and I make this very clear, especially when we get to the part of spiritual formation, is I want the people in that course to understand that the reason why we read our Bible, the reason why we pray, the reason why we Sabbath and do all those things is not a, a project self to further ourselves, but it's because of Jesus, because we love Jesus. We want more of Jesus. If we're not careful, we can take things, practices and disciplines that are supposed to get us closer to Jesus and instead, they make us more self-centered. Happiness starts with self in the world's definition. But with God's definition, happiness and blessedness starts with God. 
And here's the thing. Once you deify yourself, once you put yourself in the place of God, then all of a sudden happiness is discovered and determined by you. It's not God who tells you what happiness is. It's you who determine that, right? In, 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 in before, uh, during the enlightenment period, right, it was I think, therefore I am. I wish that was the problem we had in our culture. Our culture doesn't think at all. Now in our culture, it's I feel, therefore I am. I feel. So you can't judge me because I feel happy. I feel like this is right for me. And you can't say anything about it because I feel that way. I feel, therefore I am. When you are your own God and you have discovered and determined your own happiness and blessedness, no one from the outside can tell you otherwise. That is the culture that we have fallen into. That is the world, the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And I would argue that the enlightenment was almost easier because since it was, I think, therefore I am, if you provide enough arguments, someone can start vibing with you. But because it's, I feel, therefore I am, what can you do? That's the culture that we live in. And so what we see is that the blessedness and the happiness that Jesus is offering to us in the gospel is radically different from what the world says blessedness and happiness is. But here's the great thing. Since the world cannot produce this blessedness, the world cannot take it away either. Right? Since it's not horizontally produced, it cannot be horizontally destroyed. But if we fall into the trap of defining happiness and blessedness the way the world does, then the world can take it away. But if it starts with God and it is vertical and it is objective, not internal and subjective, it cannot be taken away. That's what we see here. In other words, the word blessedness is not some this, this happiness that Jesus is talking about is not some subjective feeling. It's an objective declaration. So what we're going to see as we work our way through these Beatitudes is that essentially the Beatitudes are a list of the privileges and the blessings that we get as citizens of God's kingdom. That's what it is. Dr. John Stott, he puts it this way. He says, the eight qualities together constitute the responsibilities and the eight blessings or privileges of being a citizen of God's kingdom. This is what the enjoyment of God's rule means. In other words, the way Stop puts it is that the only way we can ever live these out, the only way the Beatitudes can ever be true of us, we said last week that the, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' inaugural address. King Jesus is establishing his kingdom. And the only way you get the benefits of the kingdom is if you have him as king. But we talked about during our value series that because we live in a third culture, first, second, third culture, a post-Christian culture, our culture wants the kingdom without a king. They want the benefits of Jesus without the burden of Jesus. They want the lifestyle of Jesus without the law of Jesus. But what we see here is that if the Beatitudes in, in particular and this sermon in general is his inaugural address, the only way we can have his kingdom is if we also have him as our king. So with that definition in mind, with that context in mind, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to work through each one of these beatitudes. And what you're going to see is as we work through them, they actually build on themselves. 
they're not meant to be looked at individually. They are meant to be looked at holistically. So let's begin with the first beatitude that Jesus starts with, which is poor in spirit. Look what it says in Matthew 1 uh, through 3. Matthew 5, 1 through 3. It says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor, everyone say poor, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting here is that right here at the beginning, we, we see the countercultural nature of God's kingdom. Right here at the beginning. Because according to Jesus, those who will be blessed are the poor, not the rich. In our world, it's the opposite. Right? In our world, money is power. It's not those who are poor who are blessed, who have privileges, who have access, who have authority, who have power. In our world, it's those who are rich. And that even happens in the church. We just assume because someone is wealthy, they must be more righteous than me. They should be in leadership because they own a company. I don't see anything about that in the qualifications of an elder. You know that this is creeped into the church because even James, in chapter 4 of his letter, he's literally telling the church, whoa, 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 why are you showing favoritism to the rich? Why are you treating the wealthy better than the poor? Which is one of the reasons, and I don't don't, don't know if you guys know this, but I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons why I never want to know what anybody gives at our church. Because I know my sinful heart. And I know, oh, if this person gives more, oh, man, I, let me not, oh, they want that program? Let me get them that program because, God forbid, we lose that money. No, I don't care what you give or don't give. I'm going to yell at you either way. <laughs> you see, but you see the, the countercultural nature of Jesus. Jesus says that it is those who are poor in spirit, which is funny because the people who most struggled with the ministry of Jesus were the religious leaders who were not poor in spirit. They were proud in spirit. They could not bring themselves to a place to accept Jesus as Lord. Because in order for him to be Lord, they would have to confess that they were not. It's not the proud in spirit who shall be blessed. It's the poor in spirit. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the word there, poor, in Greek, there are two different words for the word poor. Uh, one word describes the working poor, and then the other word describes the desolate poor. So the working poor in those days was someone who was struggling but was making it, right? They were making ends meet. They were getting by. They weren't wealthy, but they were making ends meet. That's the one Greek word that's used in the New Testament. But what's interesting is that the Greek word that Jesus uses here is not that one, the working poor. It's the other one, the desolate, hopeless poor. The one who literally can't do anything about their situation. The one who literally has to rely on someone for everything. That is the Greek word that Jesus uses here in this context. Not the working poor, but the desolate poor. Jesus says that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, in order to step into the kingdom of God, we have to be poor in spirit. So in light of his definition, poor there doesn't mean that you, uh, you're barely making it or you're making ends meet or you just need a, you have a little bit of debt, but you know, you're, you're on the Dave Ramsey plan. 
No, no. Poor means absolutely desolate. Completely bankrupt. That's what Jesus means when he says we are to be poor in spirit. Which, in light of that, this essentially makes this the most important of all the Beatitudes. Later on, we're going to talk about the narrow gate. Jesus talks to us about the narrow gate. This is the narrow gate. The narrow gate of following Jesus is admitting that you bring absolutely nothing to the table. If you can't admit this Beatitude, forget about the rest of them. If you think the Beatitudes are just a few, you know, suggestions to, to you know, to, for God to help you religiously give you a hand up. That's why you combine poor in spirit with what we learned a few months ago when it says we are dead in our sins. That's what it is. We are dead. There's nothing we can do. Unless we are resurrected through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. We are bankrupt. We bring nothing to the table. Charles Spurgeon, he puts it this way about, he, in light of this verse. He says, not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. It's not what I have, but what I have not that is my first point of contact. Martin Luther uh, was asked once uh, what he brought to his relationship with God. And Luther said, I bring two things, my sin and my resistance. It's the only way. It is the narrow gate, which is why the world can't get in. The world cannot get in. Unless God does a work in you so that you see it, you can't get in. Because we live in a world where people have no problem with admitting they make mistakes, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not perfect, you know. I drop the ball sometimes. It's one thing to admit your external conduct not being up to par. It's a whole other thing to admit that your internal condition is not up to par. That you are broken, you are rotten, you are depraved from the inside out. The world can't admit that. Because if my problem is just external, then I just got to do other external things to fix the external problem. But if my problem is internal, there's nothing I can do. I'm absolutely helpless. If I'm truly spiritually dead, not on life support, I'm truly spiritually dead, only God can do the work then. That's why this is the narrow gate. It changes our view of the rest of the Beatitudes. It changes your view of the rest of the sermon once you understand that this is the narrow gate, admitting that you are poor in spirit. Let me put it like this. The only way we can ever receive everything is by admitting we bring nothing. In the gospel, the only way you can receive everything is by admitting that you bring absolutely nothing. The kingdom of God is based not on race, not on class, not on education, not on your resume, not on your bank account. The kingdom of God is based on the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's the first beatitude. The next beatitude I want to look at comes from verse four. He says this, blessed are those who mourn, everyone say mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, I would argue that this beatitude flows directly from the first beatitude. You see, because one of the mistakes I made 
for the longest time with this beatitude is I thought Jesus was talking about people who mourn in general. Hey, if you're mourning, if you're grieving, if you're sad, you're blessed. Because you shall be comforted. I was like, that's weird, right? But here's what I discovered. Because the Beatitudes build on them, each other, they're not meant to be read in isolation. The type of mourning, grieving, sorrow that he's talking about here is not mourning in general. It's someone who is mourning for their sins in particular. Someone who is sad and saddened and sorrowful and grieving over their sin, over their sins and the sins of the world. Someone who is grieving because of the effects of of the fall. That's a very specific type of mourning that we're talking about here. Jesus says that if you are someone who mourns over the brokenness of sin, salvation will be a comfort to you. Right? But if you're mourning because your political party lost, salvation will not be a comfort for you. If you're mourning because of the church of Jesus Christ continues to get pushed further and further out to the periphery of culture, that's what you're mourning about? Salvation is not a comfort to you. Salvation is only a comfort if what you are mourning over and grieved over is your sin. It's a very specific type of mourning. A very specific type of grieving. Here's the thing. If the first beatitude is about acknowledging your sin, right? Poor in spirit, you're acknowledging the second beatitude is about being broken over it, right? There's a difference between confession and contrition. Confession is, hey, I did something wrong. Contrition is, I feel bad about it, right? Like my kids confess their stuff to me all the time. Most of the time is because the other one is telling on them, right? There's no, they have no, it's like, hey, she hit me. All right, I guess you hit her. Yeah, I hit her, dad. Say sorry. Uh, sorry. Why'd you hit her? I don't like her face. <laughs> That's confession. That's not contrition. Just because you admit your sin doesn't mean you're broken over it. Right? So if the first one, if the first beatitude corresponds to the admission of it, the second beatitude corresponds to your brokenness over it. It's not enough to just confess it, poor in spirit. You also have to be contrite about it. Mourn. Those who mourn over their sin. And here's the thing. The way Jesus is saying it here, we're grieving, get this, not just because of the sins of the world. It's easy to turn on the news or listening you know, to a podcast or whatever it is how you're watching YouTube, however you get your news, right? Read your, 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 your morning email or newspaper. It's easy to grieve and be like, oh, Lord, I pray for the sins of the world. What a, what a broken place. I, I mourn because of the brokenness in the world. It, it's that, but it's also you mourning over your brokenness and your depravity and your waywardness, Right? Because if all we do is the first type of mourning, the sins of the world, we're no different from that Pharisee who's like, I'm glad I'm not like them. Look at that riffraff out there. Forgive them, Lord. They, they do not know what they do. This is a public, corporate mourning for what's happening out there. 
but it's also a very personal, individual mourning and grieving of what's going on in here. David Brainerd, who was a missionary in the 18th century to Native Americans, he died way too young, but God used him very powerfully during his ministry. Here's what he said in one of his devotionals, in one of his journals. He said, in my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. I've never written that in my journal. He was bitterly mourning over his sinfulness and his vileness. If we don't get to that place, we don't understand what Jesus is saying here with mourning. As a matter of fact, I would argue that part of the reason why Christians are so judgmental of others and their sin, right, and uh, the little speck in their eye is because we don't spend any time looking at the two by four in ours. At the end of the day, only those who mourn over their sin will be comforted by salvation. If salvation is not comforting you right now, it's probably because you're mourning over something other than your sin. According to Jesus, our greatest sorrow must always be our sin and our greatest joy must always be salvation. If something other than sin is your greatest sorrow and something other than salvation is your greatest joy, you probably have an idol in your life. Let's look at the next beatitude, verse five. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't normally use the word meek in my normal everyday life, right? I don't know the last time I used the word meek. Like, hey, that's a really meek person right there, right? Many of us don't even really know what the definition is of what meek is, and if we took a stab at it, many of us would probably assume that meekness is some sort of weakness. Meekness is weakness, right? But meekness can't mean weakness because both Moses and Jesus were described as meek. So it can't be weakness. It's got to be more than that because Jesus was not, maybe Moses was, but Jesus definitely was not, right? So if it's not weakness, what is meekness? Well, according to word studies, essentially, a meek person is someone who has power under control. There's power, but that power is restrained. It is under control. I can do more, but I am choosing to do less. And the word picture, interestingly enough, is of a stallion or a horse, a wild horse, who has willingly submitted itself to a master or to an owner. That's what it is. So my youngest daughter, uh, one of her favorite movies right now is uh, the movie Spirit. Uh, and uh, Spirit uh, had this terrible Netflix uh, uh, series, right? It was really bad. Um, I never sat down to watch it because I value my time too much. But I couldn't avoid the movie because we went to the theater. She was so excited Spirit was out. So we went to go see it. Well, I found I didn't know that it was a Hispanic family and that's all the Spanish and stuff. So I connected on that, you know, and whatever. But there's a point in the movie where throughout the whole movie, essentially uh, 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 Lucky, 
or Fortuna is her name in Spanish. She's trying to get spirit to be her horse. And spirit's just running around free, doing spirit type things, right? <laughs> and uh, at the end of the movie, spirit essentially willingly submits himself to Lucky and becomes her horse. And this is awesome and it's emotional. We've seen it like 22 times since. <laughs> but that is the word picture though. A meek person is willingly submitting themselves to the rule and will of God. It is power under control. That's, that's what it means there. It is essentially someone who is strong on the one hand and yet gentle on the other. Someone who is confident yet controlled. Jesus talks about a leader who doesn't lord it over others. That is a picture of meekness. Jesus is a great picture of meekness because in the garden, when uh, Peter cuts the ear of Malchus, the non-meek thing to do would have been to just call all the angels, which Jesus could have, and destroyed everybody. Had just him even saying his name pushed all the, sh- the soldiers down. They all fell. And all he did was say his name. Meekness there was him choosing to not destroy everyone with one word, even though he could have, because his goal, his will, was to submit to the will of his father. That is the greatest picture of meekness. Also, the fact that he stayed on the cross and let someone nail his hands and people spit on him. And yeah, Jesus is the greatest picture of meekness. And the pinnacle of his meekness was the crucifixion story. The opposite of a meek person. Sometimes you could understand something by seeing what the opposite is. The opposite of a meek person is someone who is controlling, manipulative, and unnecessarily assertive. Which is funny because those are the many of the leaders we're drawn to in our current day. Even Christians. The examples of leadership that we are drawn to in our current moment, look nothing like Jesus. Absolutely nothing like Jesus. Meekness, according to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, is this. Lloyd-Jones was a, was a doctor for the royal family in Wales and then stepped into ministry, was a pastor in London for many years. And he said this. He says, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. Listen to this. The man or woman who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That is what a meek person does. But here's why I think being meek requires the gospel. Because remember what I said, these are not demands These are declarations. In other words, when you place your faith in Jesus, this is true of you because it was true of him. Now you are in him, right? Understanding that you are already adopted, loved, accepted, approved is what allows you to be meek. Because you are vertically secure, you don't have to prove yourself to other people. You don't have to flex your muscles every chance you get. Because you know that your security comes from God. I can tell you that in the moments in my leadership where I have been least meek has been the moments where I have most forgotten the gospel. 
on the days where I'm on a rush, in a rush and I'm trying to get to work and I didn't get time to spend, you know, I didn't spend any time with Jesus. I wasn't reminded of who I was, that I'm already blessed because of what he did, not because of what I do. Those are the days that I am less meek. I, I, I go out, instead of having this vertical security, I leave and I go out with this uh, horizontal insecurity and I go looking for in people what I've already been given in Jesus. This is why you spending time with God is not a religious thing. It's a redemptive thing. If you spend time with God, God's not going to love you more, but you're going to be reminded that he already loves you. And then you don't go out in your insecurity trying to find it in your spouse and your children and your coworkers. But someone who is meek is someone who has reminded themselves on a daily basis of who they are vertically and that changes how they behave horizontally. In the kingdom of God, we inherit it not through might, like the world says, but through meekness. Amen? Amen. Let's look at the next beatitude, verse 6. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Everyone say righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. For they shall be satisfied. Now, let me define some terms here. Um, in Scripture, whenever you see the word thirst or hunger, specifically in the New Testament, it almost always has to do with water and food, right? You thirst for water and you hunger for food. But in this context... Jesus is using these very strong Greek verbs. It is you're desperately hungry and you're desperately thirsty. He's using them in the context not of getting more water or more food, but you are desiring and longing for righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is essentially having right standing in the eyes of another. It doesn't necessarily have to be God. It's just meeting the standards of a person having right stand, standing in the eyes of another. So that's why a lot of times people think that, you know, righteousness is this really biblical term, but really all it means is to have right standing in the eyes of another, to meet the standards and expectations of another person. This is why as believers, if we're not careful, we can settle for lesser forms of righteousness. Instead of seeking and desiring the righteousness that God offers us in the gospel, right, we settle for vocational righteousness. I, I want to be accepted by my coworkers. We settle for political righteousness. I want to be accepted by the people in my said party. We settle for relational righteousness. I want to be accepted by my spouse. We settle for parental righteousness. I want to meet the standards of my children, right? So righteousness is not necessarily a biblical term. It's just meeting the expectations or standards of another person being in right standing with someone. But in this situation, Jesus isn't talking about righteousness in general. He is talking about God's righteousness in particular. He says that someone who is in the kingdom of God, someone who has a savoring relationship with Jesus will desire, will hunger, will thirst after righteousness. And the beautiful thing is that according to Jesus, if that's you, you will be satisfied. If that's, if that's the righteousness you want, Jesus is like, good news, that's the righteousness I'm bringing. But it's only if that's the righteousness you're looking for. But if, if I'm being honest, I find myself oftentimes hungering and thirsting for things that are not the righteousness that God requires. It, it's not. 
I'd rather many times be accepted by you guys or by my elders or by my staff or by my spouse than to be acceptable in the eyes of God. Really, at the end of the day, biblically speaking, the only eyes that matter are God's. Like, you can be accepted by everyone else. And if God rejects you, you're in trouble. But the opposite is also true. You can be rejected by everybody else. But if God accepts you, you're good. But it all depends who you are seeking approval and acceptance from. Jesus says, if the righteousness you are looking for is the righteousness that comes from God, I can provide that when you place your faith in me. It's not a horizontal achieved righteousness. It is a vertical received righteousness. Now, what's interesting is that in our culture, our culture doesn't hunger and thirst for uh, righteousness. Our culture hungers and thirsts for blessedness. But what's so counterintuitive about this is that when you make blessedness the goal, you don't end up getting blessed. That's how idolatry works. Whatever you put in the place of God, you end up pushing away, right? So if you're single and you're idolizing the idea of one day not being single, that future partner, you end up becoming kind of creepy with everybody who's potentially a partner. Like, hey, wait, are you a human too? So am I. You want to get married? You want to meet my parents? No, that's creepy. <laughs> right? That, that's what happens when you idolize something. You, you put too much attention on it. So if you're a parent and you over-idolize, you idolize your children and their approval of you is the most important thing and you put them in the place of God, you don't end up bringing those kids closer. You end up pushing them away because you're putting the full weight of expectation that only God can carry on them. Same thing with a codependent spouse. When you try to look for in your spouse, horizontally, what you have in your heavenly spouse, vertically, you will push that person away. You will try to control them. You will try to manipulate them. You'll get angry at them for things they were never able to do. That's the danger about idolatry. And in our world, they, they, because they make blessedness the goal, they end up missing out on the very thing they want. In the gospel, blessedness is a byproduct. It's not the end goal. But when I receive the righteousness that is given to me in Jesus, all of a sudden, I get the blessedness as a side benefit. Because the goal is Jesus. Now, what I would argue is that in order for us to exhibit the horizontal righteousness that we want, right? Because really, this passage is also calling us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. But... It's, it's ironic. You would think that as long as I am, the more horizontally righteous I am, maybe one day I'll be good enough for God to declare me vertically righteous. But that's not what this passage says. The passage says you're already vertically righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Now go live in light of that. See the difference? So I'm not earning something. I'm living in light of what I've already been given. It's a completely different motivation. Now, uh, John Stott does a wonderful job of summarizing these four Beatitudes. And I think it's important for us to, to, to read this because it puts the, the first four Beatitudes in the context. Look what he says. Looking back, we can see that the first four Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progression of relentless logic. I love that. Relentless logic. He says, each step 
leads to the next and presupposes the one that has gone before. This is why we shouldn't separate the Beatitudes. They're meant to be seen together. He says, to begin with, we are to be poor in spirit, acknowledging our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. Next, we are to mourn over the cause of it, our sins, yes, and our sin too. The corruption of our fallen nature and the reign of sin and death in the world. Thirdly, we are to be meek, humble and gentle towards others, allowing our spiritual poverty, admitted and bewailed, to condition our behavior to them as well as to God. And fourthly, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what is the use of confessing and lamenting our sin, of acknowledging the truth about ourselves to both God and man, if we leave it there? Confession of sin must lead to hunger for righteousness. That's why they are meant to be seen together. One leads to the other, which again just shows the brilliance and the wisdom of Jesus. All right, let's move to the next beatitude, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, everyone say merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what's interesting here is that in the second half, remember there's eight Beatitudes total. We just looked at the first four. In the second half of the Beatitudes, now you see Jesus going from a vertical focus with the first four to a horizontal focus. Now he's talking to us about our relationship with other people, which ironically, that's exactly how the Ten Commandments are. In the Ten Commandments, you see the same thing. The, the first half of the Ten Commandments are vertical, your relationship with God. And then the second half are horizontal, your relationship with others. He does the same thing here in the Beatitudes. So you see Jesus going from the vertical to the horizontal, and he starts talking to us about the importance of mercy. Now, you may not know this, but there's a difference between mercy and grace. Very different. So, so mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. See the difference? So let me give you a very practical example. Let's say that after this service, I'm in, the, I'm in the lobby hanging out with people and I get back into my office. And when I get into my office, I catch you red-handed trying to take money out of my wallet. Right? That's real awkward for both of us. I'm sitting there. You're looking at me. I'm looking at you. I'm like, what are we going to do about this? Right? Mercy would be me saying, hey, man, just put the money back and forget about it. We don't have to worry about it. Mercy would be me not pressing charges, me not doing anything to you. That's mercy, right? Put the money back and we'll move on. Grace would be, hey, take the whole wallet. It's yours. See the difference? In one situation, you're not getting what you deserve, mercy. In the other, you're getting what you don't deserve. In the gospel, we get both. We get mercy, but we also get grace. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. That Jesus didn't just come to pay our debt, right? That's, he doesn't just bring us back to zero, but then he then imputes to us his righteousness and makes us spiritual millionaires. And that's why I've, I've said this in the past, but it isn't just he takes, it's like we were on death row. A lot of people tell this part of the gospel, hey, you were on death row and God got you out of death row. But it's not just that. That's, that's just the mercy part. He then takes you to the Oval Office and gives you a purple heart. That's grace. That's, that's the difference. That's the difference. So if that's the difference between mercy and grace, then essentially what mercy is, mercy and compassion are the biblical response that a Christian has to people in need. It is the filter that we use to view other people. 
It is mercy and, and compassion are the only biblical response. That's why the, Jesus uses the Samaritan as the example. It's the only biblical response for people who are in need is mercy. Not annoyance, not impatience, not judgment. Mercy is the only way that we can respond. But here's what I've learned from me, and maybe you can relate to this. I tend to use the same filter on other people that I use on myself. In other words, I can't give to others what I haven't given to myself. So for a, a long time in my ministry, um, and by a long time, I mean like literally up to about a year ago when I started really praying about this and creating like rhythms of rest in my life, I've always been a workaholic. That's been an idol in my life. And I've always thought, I don't know if I'm smarter than everybody else. I don't know if I have more money than everybody else. I don't know if I'm as talented as everybody else, but I'm gonna outwork every person in ministry that I know. I got through college that way. Heck, I feel like in many ways, I, I, by, by the grace of God, but in many ways, I got here that way, right? But because that was my lens, my filter, I found myself evaluating people through the same lens I was evaluating myself. So instead of seeing Christians and non-Christians, I saw hard workers and lazy people. Why? Because the filter we use on ourselves tends to be the filters we use on others. So until we as believers understand our positional, uh, uh, the, the, the blessing of our position in Christ, that we have received mercy, we will not be able to give other people mercy. Does that make sense? That's why this is so important. And I would argue that there should be no group of people that are more merciful than Christians. And I don't know about you, but when I look at our current cultural moment, we are not the most merciful gracious people. And I think it's because we have forgotten how merciful God has been to us. At the end of the day, religion, if, if you're looking at the Beatitudes and you see religion, you're approaching it through religion, what you get is a ladder, right? But if you approach the Beatitudes through the lens of redemption, what you see is a cross. And I've said this before, the people who are going to least have mercy for those underneath them in the ladder are the people who are furthest up on the ladder, right? That's why the elder son, brother, couldn't have grace for the younger brother because his whole life he had been playing this game and all of a sudden the father took the, the game off. The, we're not playing Monopoly anymore, son. We're playing Scrabble. And he's like, what? I'm winning. I'm dominating. I'm all the way up on this ladder and now you're telling me that there is no ladder? That's what the gospel does. Mercy is what we've received, and so mercy should be what we display. Let's look at the next beatitude, verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The phrase there, pure in heart, it literally means an internal purity. It means an undivided heart. A clean, undefiled heart. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but that's a problem, right? This is a very, very big problem is if you're following and tracking my logic. Because the reality is, it's one thing to say I am impure, again, with my conduct. It's a whole other thing to say I am impure in my condition. It's not just a hand problem. I have a heart condition. That's a very hard thing to admit. But that's exactly what Jesus is demanding from us. 
a purity of heart. And if you are approaching this through a, religion, a religious lens, this probably is the point where you get off the bus. But if you are approaching it through a redemptive lens, we are pure in heart, not because of anything we've done, but because when we are in Christ, God sees us through the lens of Christ. God sees us as if we have already obeyed the Beatitudes, as if we're currently living it out. Not because we actually are, but because he did in our place. Can I get an amen? Because I'm pretty sure that's good news. Maybe I'm, maybe you hit the sap button. Maybe I'm speaking in Spanish. Hit the sap button and then maybe you understand what I'm saying, but that's good news. That's crazy. That's what we see. That essentially the religious leaders, remember what Jesus said about them. Jesus said, the problem with you is that the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is dirty. You are whitewashed tombs. You, you look all clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. That's what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about their purity of heart. They were pure in their hands, but they were not pure in their hearts. And the thing about the word heart is that the word heart is much more than just our emotion. When we think of heart, we tend to think of our emotions, right? But in scripture, the, the heart is much more than just your feelings and your emotions. Your heart was the center of your being. It was the core of your person. It, it included your volition and your intellect, your decision-making, your will. It included the whole thing. So when Jesus says that our heart must be pure, he's talking about from the inside out, the, the core of your person, right? The problem, though, with Jesus demanding purity of heart is that in Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah says that we should never trust our hearts because the heart is deceitful above all things, right? That's why the worst advice we can tell someone is to follow their heart. No, do not follow your heart under any circumstances, it is broken. It is depraved. It is deceitful. So Jesus says we need a pure heart. Jeremiah says we have a deceitful heart. And the only thing that can bridge that gap is the gospel. The only person that can see God is the person who is pure in heart. But if it's true that sin pollutes and blinds, then none of us can see God. But what's beautiful, though, and I'm going to come back at some point and do a series on this, is that in Psalm 22, we're told about the crucifixion of Jesus. In Psalm 23, we're talk, we, talk, we learn about him walking through the valley of death, which is essentially Saturday. So if Psalm 22 is Friday, Saturday is 23. And then in Psalm 24, we see the picture of the resurrection because it says, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Only he who has a clean heart and clean hands. So we can see God because Jesus sees God. We are in him. He is the cleft in the rock that we hide in. So when the glory of God comes by, it doesn't destroy us. Let's go to the next beatitude. We got two more. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here's the thing. There's a very big difference between being a peacemaker and being a peacekeeper, okay? Here's the thing. When it comes to conflict, there tends to be three types of people. There are the people who are addicted to it. There are the people who avoid it. And then there are the people who address it. So let's, let's work our way through. The first approach that some people have, and you know these people, this might be you. Like, if you can't think of the person, it's probably you, okay? 
Um, but it's the person who is addicted to conflict. Now, no matter where they go, someone's always getting on their nerves. Whether it's their boss or their coworkers or their cousin or their aunt or their neighbor, there's always something. It's, it's never their fault. But man, they love themselves some conflict. You know that it's only a matter of time before they get in a fight with somebody else because they are addicted to conflict. Now, that might be some father wounds, some mother wounds, who knows? Maybe they had to like rely on themselves early on in life. Well, who knows? But, but they're the people who are addicted to conflict, who will find conflict under every rod, right? Then they're the avoiders of conflict, who avoid conflict at all costs. Hey, no, no, you're good. You're good. I'm fine. I'm fine. What? No. I'm great. And you get home and cry at night. Right? Those are the avoiders. But the Bible doesn't call us to be addicted to it or to avoid it. The Bible calls us to address it, which is the balance between the two. And that's why, at the end of the day, we are not called to be keepers of peace. A keeper of peace is someone who just avoids conflict. Hey, let's keep the peace. Hey, 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 let's everybody calm down. Whoa, whoa. Right? That's what a keeper of peace does. They avoid it, put their head in the sand, and hope it blows away. But that's not what the Bible calls us to be. It's not keepers. It's makers. We are to make peace. But the problem with a keeper is that a keeper is settled. They settle for the absence of conflict. As long as there's no conflict, there must be peace. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that peace is shalom. And shalom is not the absence of conflict. Shalom is the presence of prosperity. It's the presence of harmony. It's the presence of unity. That's why you have marriages who are together for decades and they're just keeping the peace. There is no unity. There is no harmony. There is no intimacy. There's no fighting. But there is no loving either. That's the thing. I think every single one of us needs to evaluate our relationships right now and ask ourselves, in which relationships am I keeping the peace and in which relationships am I making peace? Because to make peace, you can't go around conflict. You can't run away from it. You got to go through it. Just like Jesus did. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He went through the conflict with Satan, with death, with the flesh in order to deliver us. That's what we are called to do. And when we do it, we act like sons and daughters of God. Peacemakers act like sons and daughters of God. Why? Because Satan is a troublemaker and Jesus is a peacemaker. Jesus came to restore and bring peace where Satan had brought division. We are told in Ephesians 2 that he tore down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus didn't walk away from it. He stepped into it. And that is what we are called to do as followers of him. We are now given the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5 says to go out and horizontally reconcile people because God has vertically reconciled us. And the last one is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in this final beatitude, I would argue that essentially it's a culmination. If you live the first seven out, you will experience the eighth. (laughs) 
if the more you look like Jesus, the more you will be treated like Jesus. Okay? Jesus says that a disciple of him who's living in light of this passage will experience persecution. And that when we do, we will be blessed. But don't miss it. The persecution is because of righteousness sake. It's on his account. That's what he says. It's on my account. Not because of your Facebook account. Oh yeah, pastor, I get persecuted all the time. I don't, I don't get it. Man, I'm just a faithful servant of Jesus, I guess, because I'm getting persecuted left and right. Yeah, uh, is it because of Jesus or is it because you're annoying on social media? Because you repost nonsense and you're a conspiracy theorist and nobody likes you. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like is it because of Jesus or is it because of you? Like, let's put this in context. Because if the reason why you're being persecuted is because of your political party, not because of your savior, then you ain't getting it right. Because Jesus didn't come to bring a political kingdom. That's why his disciples were so disappointed by this sermon. Because they thought, this is it. We're getting rid of the Romans. And Jesus said, no, I'm here to get rid of your sin. Your real enemy. Jesus says that a disciple will be like their teacher. And the more we are like Jesus, the more we will be treated like Jesus. And the persecution here, it can mean physical torture, which some of us may one day experience. I don't know. But it definitely means verbal insults and persecution. People making comments and criticizing. Why why is that person so weird? Right? That's going to happen when we seek to live live, live our lives for Jesus. The beautiful thing, though, is the reason why we can rejoice when that happens, the reason why we can rejoice here on earth is because our reward is in heaven. Don't miss that. If your reward is on earth, persecution is not a blessing. But if your reward is in heaven, it is a blessing. Because, like we said earlier, if the world didn't produce the blessedness, it can't take it away. Amen? As I conclude this morning... um, I won't spend too much time on this, but I want to make sure I end here. We, we've looked at the portrait of a disciple, and uh, I want to conclude this morning by, by looking at the position of a disciple. And the reason why I want to do that is because if we don't, then again, the assumption will be, all right, Will, thank you for the to-do list. Thank you for the portrait. I'm going to do everything in my power for the next week to make sure I look like this. But if that's how you respond, you're not getting it. You're not getting the point of what Jesus was saying. See, we said last week that if we don't zoom out, we will always miss the forest for the trees. And ultimately, what we see is that these Beatitudes are not about us. They are about someone else. And it's like when you first look at it, you can't see it. The temptation, because Martin Luther says our religious default setting is to see ourselves in everything, right? And I, what do I got to do? But once you uh, turn the corner and, and, and hit that switch, you can't unsee it, right? The, 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 one of my elders the other day sent me this picture, and it was a, a nativity scene made of wood. And it was like, is this a nativity scene or are these two, two T-Rexes uh, working in the shop or something? And I'm like, what? So I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. And all I see is Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, right? And then all of a sudden, I see the two T-Rexes. 
And once I saw the two T-Rexes, I couldn't see the, the other thing anymore. Now all I see every time I look at that picture are two T-Rexes working a saw. It's crazy, right? But that's how this passage is. I think when we initially look at it, we're like, oh, I get this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks for the advice, Pastor. I got it. You know, I was, I was struggling a little bit this week, but I just needed some religious fuel to get me through the next week. But then when you see it, it's like those 3D pictures. You look and you look, I don't see anything. I never, my, I don't know what's on my eyes. I, that never worked for me. Like everyone would be like in class, hey, I can see it, I can see it. I'm like, oh, me too. You know, I can see it too. And like you get close and you're, it, it never worked. It never worked for me. But man, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so that's how this, these Beatitudes are. It's like once you see this portrait of someone else, you cannot help but see that person. And the portrait is not us. The portrait is of Jesus. The Beatitudes were lived out by Jesus Christ. He is the personification of them, the embodiment of them. He lived the life we couldn't live. And at the cross, he died the death we should have died. And the only way, get this, the only way the Beatitudes will ever be true of us practically is if they are first true of us positionally. It's the only way. And to the degree that we embrace our position, then to that same degree, it'll affect our practice. But we have to see Jesus and we can't see ourselves. But what's beautiful is according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, the more we behold Christ, we are transformed from one level of glory to another. The more we behold Jesus, the Beatitudes, the person behind it, the more we become like Jesus the more we are transformed into his image. So in other words, we, we, we carry out the, the Beatitudes not by behaving, but by beholding, but by believing. And then as we behold and believe, then it starts to affect how we behave. Did you know that the Old Testament ends with a curse? In Malachi, right at the end of the last verse of the Old Testament, essentially what he tells the Israelites, if you don't obey, you will be cursed. That is the last sermon ever preached in the Old Testament. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and instead of ending with a curse, he begins with a blessing. But here's why. The reason why we get a blessing and not a curse is because Jesus took the curse in our place. And what we see is that at the cross, the, the most favored one was rejected. At the cross, the blessed one was cursed. At the cross, the, orf the, the, the beloved son became an orphan. At the cross, the inheritor of all things became poor. And when you see that, it changes the way you view the Beatitudes because now, all of a sudden, when you look at the Beatitudes, you no longer see a list of religious demands. You see a list of redemptive declarations. You no longer see imperatives, you see indicatives. You no longer see a, a list of do's, you see a done. You no longer see a plan of action, you see a plan of atonement. The only reason, church, why we are blessed is because Jesus was cursed. And the only reason why we are accepted is because he was rejected. The only reason why we are brought in is because he was pushed out. And the only reason why we can have his position is because he took our position. And as I conclude, I want to read this to you because I feel like it summarizes 
this whole message. As I read through the Beatitudes, I can't help but think of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The only reason why you and I can ever be rich is because according to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. The only reason why we will be comforted is because Jesus mourned inconsolably. The only reason why we will inherit the earth is because Jesus lost it all. The only reason why we will be satisfied, our hunger and thirst will be satisfied, was because Jesus cried, I thirst from the cross. The only reason why we shall receive mercy is because Jesus received none of it on the cross. The only reason why we shall see God is because at the cross, his father turned his face away. And the only reason why we will be called sons and daughters of God is because at the cross, the beloved son became an orphan. Amen?